0: It'll come as no surprise to you when I say, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Ezra. We will again be in verse 9 or chapter 9. And we'll read verses 10 through 15, although we'll be focusing this morning on the second half of verse 14. Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity." that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who have practiced these abominations." Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts this morning to Your Word today. Let us hear the Spirit as He speaks to this church, this collection of believers. And God, let let us hear Your voice speaking clearly to us. Words of comfort or warning, encouragement or rebuke. Father, we say Do with us what you will today. You are the potter and we are the clay. Teach us in our hearts. Make us doers of your word as we seek to honor you and glorify you. As is done through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. We began looking at this central point of Ezra's confession uh, last week, and it represents the greatest fear that he has after everything that has happened in this book. After being called by God to undertake the journey to return to the land of Israel. After obtaining the permission of the king of Persia for the journey after organizing and recruiting those who would return after putting in order the offerings and the gifts for the temple after the long journey imperil constantly from raiders after the begin after beginning his ministry of teaching the law of god to god's people that after all of these things everything that they have gone through to understand the real possibility that they were all for nothing. After all the kindness of God, after all His leading, the possibility that the hearts of the people were too far gone into sin to be called back. The possibility that they loved their sin more than they loved God and could thus never be persuaded to follow His way again. He confronted the very real possibility that they had fallen away. The Bible calls it apostatized. And then the question comes to us this morning in the passage that we're looking at. If they're too far gone in their sin, what will be God's answer? And that's the very place we find ourselves In the second half of verse 14, for He says, Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? That word for consume here is really, really interesting. It is a very common verb used in its Hebrew form over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's often translated destroyed or finished in addition to consumed. And so for us, we picture something, if something is consumed, we almost picture something like the altar that Elijah built on the top of Mount Carmel when he challenged the priests of Baal. And after the priests of Baal, you'll recall, had spent a day screaming at a block of stone, Elijah made a short prayer which God answered like this as we read in 1 Kings 18.38. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The only problem is that the word consume here is an entirely different word. It is most commonly translated in the Old Testament, eat. You see, the word that Ezra uses in his prayer is not nearly so grand, is not nearly such a big special effect. When he talks about God consuming the people, I think the best way I can explain it is this way. The word that Ezra uses for consume here carries the picture of the location of Elijah's altar the next day. After the flames have subsided, after the roar and the violence is over. When Ezra says, consumed in this prayer, the idea is that of a fire that has been untended, dying as the last ember ceases to glow. It is ended. It has ceased. There simply is. No more. God, would You not be so angry with us that You would just end us? That You would just end our story? That is the cry of Ezra's heart here. As John Owen put it, God takes no more interest in them and expects no spiritual fruit from them. It reminds me of the words of T.S. Eliot in his poem, The Hollow Men, where he says, this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. The sad reality is that apostasy, which means distancing yourself from God or falling away, is quiet. And it is most often very gradual as well. Few are lured away by, from God by some sudden argument contrived by the enemy. Most who fall away move away step by step, sin by sin, until it takes no pressure at all to sever them completely from Christ and His church. Now, some of you may be confused, or even if you're honest with me, a bit concerned you may be saying, but I thought the Bible teaches that salvation is all of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It does indeed. That is the heart of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is indeed the confidence and the hope of all the elect of God, so that no one may boast in their own deeds. And so you may be thinking, But I also thought the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. That those who are effectually called by God to salvation can never lose that salvation. It does teach that throughout the Scripture and without fail. John 6.37 summarizes in a single verse, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We see in that single verse the blessed doctrines of election and perseverance married together forever in the words of Jesus. And we see that truly, as Revelation 7.10 says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So some may ask that if those doctrines are true and reliable, how could any fall away? Well, certainly Scripture is not set against itself. Scripture is is completely consistent. But the examples, the evidences, the teachings, and the warnings against falling away from faith cannot be overlooked. They are far too plentiful. In fact, they're so plentiful that there are some who would deny the perseverance of the saints as a doctrine and instead declare that people can lose their salvation once it's been conceived, given, delivered, and secured by Almighty God. How ridiculous. And if they defend themselves at all by Scripture... They point to the passages on apostasy and declare them to negate the passages on perseverance. An entire misuse of the Scripture that is God's holy Word. We must never allow our faith to rest on mere philosophies but on the whole teaching of Scripture. And the whole teaching of Scripture teaches both perseverance of the saints and the reality and danger of apostasy. Some familiar examples of apostasy can be found in a single chapter, Matthew 13, where two parables are contained. The parable of the soils where the rocky soil yielded a plant that grows quickly, but had no root to withstand temptation or persecution. Another example immediately follows in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the tares are allowed to grow in peace alongside the true wheat until the time the fruit is ripened and the difference may be seen between the two you could say and defend it well that Matthew 13 contains many warnings against apostasy. But let's look first at Ezra's concern in prayer today. It can be summarized by saying it this way, God is too holy to allow people, especially His people, to soil His name. Yes, God is loving, but His love does not compete against His holy nature. When the third commandment commands us not to take the name of the Lord God in vain, it is not just a command not to cuss. It is a warning to those who would follow Him that we should never bring anything but glory to His name. Never make it empty. And those returning remnant had done that very thing. They soiled the name of God among the idolaters of the land by mixing with them. And it was in complete rebellion to the intention of God in restoring them. He told us what He was going to do in Ezekiel 36. Verses 22 and 23, when he told them, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. There's no wonder that Ezra looked with horror upon the willful sin of the remnant when they had picked that right back up where their grandfathers had left off. No sooner had they arrived in the land than they went back to the idols. They may not have gone and bowed down, but they allowed them. They married into them. They endorsed them. Child of God, if you are a child of God, know that God is just as concerned with His holy name today as He was in Israel's day. He still guards His name. He still upholds His name. And rather than allow you to continue in willful sin, in knowing and unrepentant disobedience to Him, thus soiling His name, He can and will make a judgment against you here and now. If you are truly His, your salvation is sure. But He will not long allow you to discredit His name. His judgment can and will fall on you in this life. And it will be for your own good as well. You see, the judgment of God here and now is completely different for His children as it is for those who are not His children. For His children, His judgment consists entirely of His measured, chastening hand. Like was said last week, all God's wrath toward the sin of His children was poured on and satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross so that the chastening by God has the effect of bringing us away from sin and closer to Him. But just because His hand is measured doesn't mean that His chastening is never severe. There are probably some in this room who experience chastening by their earthly fathers, a measured hand, but hardly pleasant. because we may be prone to wander. When we have wandered into dangerous areas, dangerous to our soul and dangerous to God's name, He may severely chastise us to break us from that sin. I'd like to discuss a few ways that God corrects His children right here on earth. The first way is through His church. The church is the primary means of regular discipline that the Holy Spirit will use. It's unfortunate that this great purpose of the church has been lost in recent decades as churches in the United States have adopted a don't ask, don't tell policy. How much pain could be avoided in believers' lives by a simple, loving word of rebuke from a fellow believer. Simple. When I say that, I mean directly from Scripture. Loving. And by that I mean really loving. Not the kind of rebuke where you have to come up to someone and say, I'm telling you this in love. Because what I have found is that somebody has to tell you they ain't. When we're really loving to someone, we are pointing it out not simply because it bothers me, but because I'm concerned for your life, for your soul. And that rebuke, It doesn't have to be harsh. It doesn't even have to be done with our eyebrows together. It can sound something like, do you think it's okay to do fill in the blank in the light of the Scripture where it says this? A gentle answer turns away wrath. You see, correction through the church is by far the least invasive, the least painful of the tools for correction that the Holy Spirit uses. Correcting by a loving brother or sister might hurt our ego. It might bruise our pride, but often little else if we repent. Accountability to each other is one of the greatest benefits of being the church as it relates to our spiritual state. The second way that God corrects His children here on earth is by removal from service. This most often affects those with some authority in the church, but not always. And it is not simply those who teach, although we know that those who teach will merit a stricter judgment. For some who persist in sin, who have some area of responsibility in the church, or who are sharing the gospel with others, as we should all be doing, a fall for those will be more severe setback for the progress of the gospel of Christ We've seen recent examples of that in the life of a man who defended faith around the world. But after his death, truly difficult details emerged as to the grievous sins that he and his organization kept hidden. But lest we become too judgmental of others and too little of ourselves, I would ask you this. Would you be embarrassed for others to see your unedited and undeleted browser history? Or your book selections? Or your music playlists? Or your movie subscriptions? Or your text messages? Or would it humiliate you to have your private conversations broadcast for all to hear? Removal from service was the very thing the Apostle Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 9.27 where he said, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's no coincidence that the word he uses in this verse, disqualified, is a translation of the word that Ezra uses, consumed. Two different languages, the same word. Paul was concerned and kept constant guard on himself so that after preaching to others, he would not simply fade out and end. His story, His mission, His service would not end. Because for those who do not remain vigilant about themselves, we are in grave danger of being useless to God. The third way God corrects His children can be described as straightened circumstances. Because God's chastisement can also reach into our lives outside the realm of the church. If the rebuke of the church has not brought you to repentance or has not been made because the church has failed in its duty, then God will often give you a lack in another area to draw you back to Him. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read, God considers every part of your life His. Every part of your life set apart to Him. And most of the Old Testament prophets we read in Obadiah. He wasn't talking to Israel. He wasn't talking to Judah. He was talking to Edom. A completely different country. But God is in control of everything. And most of these Old Testament prophets declare that God uses economic difficulties to bring about spiritual results. We read in Amos chapter 4 verses 6 through 8, where he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. He's not talking about good dental plans. He's talking about they couldn't get their teeth dirty with food because there was no food to be had and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. It reminds us of the passage that we read in Revelation. Even though God's judgment is poured out on people, you did not return, you didn't repent. Certainly not every case of economic difficulty is caused by spiritual problems. But it is worth seeking God through the Scriptures and prayer in the midst of those difficulties to find His purpose in it. Another way you can look at those things is to make a note of those episodic difficulties and see if they correlate with sinful episodes in your life, perhaps you will see the voice of God crying out to you, I gave you a weakened bank account. I gave you more bills than you had income. And you did not return to me. You did not repent. The fourth way that God corrects His children is through tragic events. There are sinful points it is possible for a child of God to reach that God will deal with through tragedy. Some of those events flow from the direct result of sin. Like when a person is addicted to drugs or drunkenness. If their sin causes harm or death to another person. But for some, that cause is unrelated. It is part of the infinite grace of God that He will in some cases remove us from this world to prevent us from falling into grievous sin. We shouldn't count on it. We could still commit grievous sin if we don't watch ourselves. But we know that God can choose to remove us rather than to allow us to fall. In speaking of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, Paul warns the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But we are, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God sometimes enforces perseverance by bringing to us illness or death. Now some difficult events are not chastisement at all being called to new service, being persecuted for His name's sake, or martyrdom as we see happening all over the world today. Those are gifts to the faithful. Now I must say before we end that all these chastisements may come upon the child of God but where real apostasy happens is among those who may think they are children of God but who are not one of his this falling away is what's talked about in Matthew 13 and in other and in other places and it is a terrifying possibility The possibility of standing before the great judge Jesus Christ and declaring all your works to Him, but hearing from Him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what are the warning signs of apostasy? How can we look in ourselves and find if we are truly of the faith? I would send you first to a long and concerted read of 1 John. Because the entire book was written so that you may know that you are in Christ. But I would offer a few suggestions here as well. Some ways you can test to see if you are in the faith or you might be what the saints of old called false professors. The first is that false professors put limits on how far they will go with God. We saw that in the plant with no root. When the temptation came, when the persecution came, they withered because they had no root in themselves. These people say most often only within their hearts, not out loud, God, I'll go with you this far, and no further. Or they might say, God, you have no right to ask this of me. You have no right at all to ask this. Now, a true believer could at, the, at times have these very same thoughts. I shudder to think how many believers in their lives might have said, God, I love you, but please don't send me to be a missionary in Africa. I did have a professor though in response to that he said if God truly loves you He will call you to Africa and if you truly love Him you'll go. When we put limits on God I guarantee you He will push past that limit to test your faith. To Abraham He said sacrifice your son to the rich young ruler. He said, go and sell all you have and follow me. In these situations, believers respond in faith and the false fall away. The second way we can determine in our hearts if we are true or we are false is that false professors will hide sin rather than repenting of it. Those who are false want nothing to do with repentance. Their life is built on making people think they believe, like acting like a believer. Often they'll even ask, what does a believer do in this situation? 1 John eight warns us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth. Is not in us. The third way we can test ourselves is that false professors will defend the world rather than expose its sin. This test is stark. How do you relate to the sins of this world? Do you embrace it like the returning exiles embrace the idolatry of the land? Because false professors will find much to defend in the sins of this world. Calling homosexuality an alternative lifestyle or a valid family unit. Calling abortion birth control. Romans 1, and 27 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. This is not talking about what led them into sin. This is talking about the state that they are in when God gave them up. When they have fallen away. The fourth test, false professors will refuse to love. 1 John 2.9 tells us whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And the fifth and final test I would offer you today, and I do encourage you to go to First John, read it prayerfully, false professors will choose a church that scratches their itch. And that itch is not to hear the truth of Scripture. Social media makes me very sad almost every week. Because every week I see people who post something like looking for a church with a great children's program. Looking for a church with a great youth program or a dynamic music ministry when all they're asking for is I'm looking for a church that has a good show. Those who are false don't want to be confronted by the truth of Scripture. They want to enjoy a Christian show, an uplifting alternative to the world, but they don't want to hear about their sin. They don't want to be confronted by the Spirit. They don't want to be called to repentance. They want to leave church whistling and skipping. Judge your hearts. Know for sure that you are truly His. Apostasy should terrify us. We should buffet our bodies to make sure that we remain in the faith. We should guard our hearts so that even the merest hint of sin is eradicated as soon as we see it or feel it or think it. It should keep us because our love for God is greater than our love for this world. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us. We have too often given in to the spirit of the age. We have too often wondered if sin was really that bad particularly for those sins that so easily entangle us. We confess that we haven't always viewed sin as our mortal enemy. But as a lark, as something we might enjoy, forgive us. Let us never be friends with the sin of this world. Let us never defend the sin here. But let us speak the truth in love. Let us speak the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to set us free from the law of sin and death, who came to make us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sin. Who came to deliver us true freedom instead of the condemnation that the law would give us. Who came to make us not your enemies, but your children. If I live a thousand years... I will not approach understanding how much love that required. But God, you are forever. Your mercy, your grace, your love is unbounded to your children. You love us with an everlasting love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.